Father, we're approaching a, another text today and uh, one that's a little bit difficult for some people, so we ask for wisdom and understanding and we pray that you would uh, really enlighten us as to what you want us to get out of these particular passages, Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I guess I should start this morning by saying, maybe confessing that somebody caught me. Somebody caught me. Somebody noticed. Somebody said that last week I was finishing chapter 16 and I didn't finish. I went all the way down to verse 27, but I never mentioned verse 28. Now, listen, somebody... (laughs) Did you really think I would not cover verse 28 at some point? This is why we teach through the Bible verse by verse, so we won't dance around the hard stuff. We have to, we have to take it straight on. So um, seriously though, uh, Matthew 16, 28 is a pretty common text that's used by skeptics or unbelievers um, to try to sort of attack your faith in the Bible. Um, some pretty prominent men in the past have actually pointed to this particular verse, verse 28 of Matthew 16, to explain part of the reason they're not believers or they gave up on Christianity or whatever. I don't know if that's the real reason, but that's what they said. Uh, one example is Albert Schweitzer. You've probably heard that name if you're older. If you're younger, you'd say, who's that? Um, Albert Schweitzer was an absolute genius. Um, he was the son of a Lutheran pastor. He was a famous musician and organist. He, he even knew everything about putting together those incredibly complex pipe organs and all of that stuff. He became a philosopher. He uh, became an academic theologian. He became a medical doctor and went to a French colony in Africa and served there as a medical doctor for many, many years. And uh, in 1952, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And People spoke of his name with kind of hushed tones. I mean, he was sort of a secular saint, if you will, in in American culture, global culture, really. That's why he became so well-known. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. But anyway, he studied the Bible with a very critical eye. Obviously, his dad was a pastor, right? But he he came as a critic to it. And he wrote a really famous book that influenced a lot of other people's thinking called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, as though you won't find him here. So um, where, where can we find the historical Jesus? Well, there's hints of him in here, and you have to kind of figure out what the hints are. So um, he, came, he, he studied the Bible at this a, a critical point of view, a critical method, and his conclusion was that Jesus got so wrapped up in his messianic thinking that he came to believe that the end of the world was going to, he sensed his own impending doom, and he taught that the end of the world was going to come um, with his demise. And, and then the new age would usher in. And it just didn't happen. So he died and his, his prophecies didn't come true because he kind of got wrapped up into himself. And, and, uh, and the early Christians were wrong uh, that they believed the world was going to end during their lifetime. And they were wrong about that. So a big part of his argument is actually found here. And there's other little things he brings in to kind of support it. But this is kind of the key part here. So just backing up for a second, in in verse 21, Matthew says, uh, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So he expected to be killed and raised up. And then if you go down to verse 28, he says, truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So you can kind of see the problem there. So Schweitzer concluded that if you just take these words in isolation all by themselves, they could mean that the second coming would occur before somebody in that group he was talking to died, right? So since Peter's not 2,000 years old and, Jesus, and you know, John isn't, or any of those guys standing there weren't, then um, it, you could conclude that that didn't happen. They all died, he didn't show up. Um, so looking at it from where we sit all these centuries later, later, either Jesus was wrong or he meant something else by that, right? So I want to explain this morning why it's totally reasonable and textual to believe that he meant something else by that. In fact, it's really quite clear that he meant something else by that than that specific thing. So first of all, you have to consider that, well, just thinking about it from the big picture, you, you really have to think about the fact that these words are here that they were recorded and in the Gospels since the very beginning. So you have to uh, weigh the fact that Matthew wrote them down and Mark wrote them down and Luke wrote them down. And why would they, not only why would they write them down, but why would they have been Christians if they knew this didn't happen? Because um, if Jesus was wrong, why would the guys who wrote the Gospels bother writing the Gospels? I mean, they made it their life's work to share the good news that Jesus was the risen Messiah, and that's a really important word, risen, the risen King who died for the sins of the world. And his resurrection is the basis for his future coming. So all of these guys, Matthew and Mark, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So. Um, the, the basis for that isn't like, oh, he died and someday he's coming back again. It's that they knew that he was a resurrected personage. So uh, people don't generally come back from the dead. So when, when that happens, it's like a really amazing thing and that's where they're trusting in his authoritative word. So he puts this down. Now, the same kinds of critical sort of thinking scholars that say Jesus was mistaken are also the ones that say the New Testament was written much later after the eyewitnesses were all gone. So they surmise that the authors of the Gospels, if you go to a Bible class and uh, university, they're going to tell you this kind of theorizing. Um, some editors lived later on and they sort of took these bits of tradition about Jesus and they composed the Gospels and they would say they composed them to meet the needs of a growing church. There's a lot of good reasons to believe that's totally bogus, but I'm not going to get into that now. But if it was written later, after the eyewitnesses were gone, why would these guys include a verse that could easily say, well, Jesus never came during the lifetime of these eyewitnesses? Why would they include that? Right? I mean, that's a, that's a fair question. Wouldn't it kind of mess with the whole claim that Jesus is the Son of God to be worshipped and followed unto death? I mean, why would they put, even put these words in here? So one thing it shows you is that they're not hiding anything, the guys that wrote the Gospels. They're willing to put in things that might prove to be difficult like Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That has to be explained to people, you know. I mean, if I was just trying to make it easy, I would just leave out little difficult details like that. But if it was written later, and the eyewitnesses were gone, and this is much later, and they're trying to meet the needs of the church, they would not include that statement. Well, if you think about it, that they actually exist in the text means, well, one of two things. 
One, the gospel writers didn't alter Jesus' sayings. They kept them even though they were difficult. And two, it, or it means the books were really early and they were written by eyewitnesses. So, or it could be both of those things. So if they're late, they very carefully preserved difficult sayings. If they're early, then they are faithful eyewitnesses of Christ's life and work and his resurrection, which is the foundation for this belief that he's coming back. So the weight of evidence really is, the saying is authentic and also that the gospel writers did not, um, they did not understand the words to mean that the second coming would necessarily happen before their lives were over. It could have happened but that they're not saying it, that's what he's saying here. So what's the answer? I mean, how did they perceive it? When Mark, Matthew wrote this down, and Mark wrote this down, and Luke wrote this down, how did they perceive these words of Jesus? Did they, did they understand him to mean that the second coming would happen before the last one of them passed away in this world? Well, they didn't see it um, the way that Albert Schweitzer saw it. What they did do was uh, they wanted the reader to understand it. And it's all right here in the context. All you have to do to get it is keep reading. You have to keep reading. Always look at the context. So let me back up before we keep reading and say, where, where are we in Matthew's gospel? Well, it's really clear that he's moving into the, the rejection period and actually moving past it now. Jesus is going to be rejected as the Messiah. He says so in verse 21 there. Jesus' own ministry has shifted from the proclamation of the kingdom, although that's still going on, but the emphasis of his ministry has shifted towards training the disciples to carry on when he's gone to take over. It's getting them ready for what was to come. The most shocking news he gives them appears in verse 21, which we already talked about. He will suffer and die and rise on the third day. And that's what knocked Peter back on his heels. I mean, he just like, what? They're going to kill you? What are you talking about? And we have that famous encounter in verse 22 and 23 where Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. How dare you say something like that, Jesus? God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And we talked about that the last couple weeks. So this nudes of Jesus' impending death is not sitting well with Peter especially, but with all, the, all of the disciples expected and believed that the messianic kingdom was coming and that Jesus was the king. That's where they'd come to. At some point, they believed Jesus would manifest himself as the glorious conqueror, a ruler of unsurpassed power and greatness. And even though Jesus' gentle ways didn't seem to fit in with that, um, they had to have assumed when they started to realize he was the Messiah that that was, good. that was just a prelude to the kingdom and that, that the kingdom was coming. First proclamation, then power, right? If he dies, what happens to all of that then? Well, who have they been following and what are their, what's their whole thing? That's, it's, it's pretty clear. That's why people turned against Jesus towards the end. He wasn't the Messiah as, that they imagined he should be. So now, if it's true Jesus said at the end, he said, I will suffer at their hands greatly and die. And then he said, and rise on the third day. Um, that's pretty important that he, he mentioned that. But that might have been really hard for them to grasp. I mean, it's pretty clear from the context that Peter just jumps on the dying idea. He doesn't even really think about that. But raised up on the third day, 
they might have just taken that as a spiritual thing, a metaphorical thing, um, something other than a true resurrection. Even when Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, verse 23, that her brother Lazarus would rise again, she said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, she understood that kind of language is referring to the end of the age when the, the resurrection of all the righteous happened. But the disciples, they're stunned, they're staggered by this news of Jesus' impending death. And they, they just can't fit that into their mental framework. That's why Peter's like, don't even talk like that. What are you doing? You're being so negative. That's not going to happen. And you're really not supposed to say that to the Son of God, um, that he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not, not good. So, in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus begins to teach them that there are two advents. He doesn't say two advents, but if he says he's going to die and rise on the third day and then says what he says in 27, a logical conclusion would be, since he said him at the same time, that he's going to come twice. So, in verse 27, he says, um, the Son of Man is going to come in glory, the glory of his Father, with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's the Messiah everybody's been waiting for, expecting, looking for. And Jesus says it's him, the Son of Man. That's his term for himself, always. And there it is. So it's going to happen. That's really clear. He will come in glory. All of your expectations will be fulfilled. It'll be a return in power. He will carry out his role as judge. Then we come to our little problem verse, verse 28. What does he mean? Now, there's a lot of ideas about what he could mean, but I think the simplest, easiest explanation for it that makes perfect sense is just to keep reading. So that's going up to back to that point again. So Jesus' words in verse 28, like I said, they're in Matthew, they're in Mark, and they're in Luke. And in each gospel, they are immediately followed, that, th- th- those words are immediately followed by the account of what's called the transfiguration of Christ, which is an amazing thing in itself. But somebody would say, yeah, but that's in the next chapter. (laughs) Don't be concerned about chapters. Did you know when they wrote the New Testament, didn't have chapters, didn't have chapters. Chapter breaks in the Bible are not inspired. They're not original. They were added in the Middle Ages. There was a wonderful churchman, Greek scholar, I mean, uh, uh, New Testament scholar, and his name was Stephen Langdon. He was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, but when, before that, when he was a professor of theology at the University of Paris, he took the Bible and broke it up into chapters so it would be easier to find things. And he arbitrarily did that. I mean, he had his reasons for where he put the breaks, generally speaking, but they're, they're not inspired. So you're not leaping necessarily when you go to the next chapter. Sometimes they just flow right out of what's been said before, right? In fact, that same guy, Stephen Langdon, he later wrote the Magna Carta, which is like one of the foundation documents of liberty in the Western world. So he did both of those things. That's kind of an impressive guy, actually. But sometimes he put the chapter breaks in the, what we might call the wrong place. And sometimes you just notice it right away. For example, in Matthew, the break is right after Jesus says, in verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Chapter break, end of story, new subject. Seems like, right? But in Mark, 
chapter 9 when Stephen Langdon put the brakes in there he put them in a totally different place in fact Mark chapter 8 ends like this what will, what will a man give in exchange for his soul just like Matthew 16 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels just like Matthew 16 but that's where he puts the break right there and then in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 it says and Jesus was saying to them truly I say to you there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power and then in verse 2 it says six days later Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and brought them to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them so in Mark's gospel that sort of controversial verse is directly linked by the chapter break with the transfiguration not, not what came before so it, and in Luke's gospel it all just flows together there's no chapter break at all so those are arbitrary things don't, think, don't let chapter breaks kind of affect your reading of the New Testament so that makes sense so in Mark this hard saying is directly tied to the transfiguration story and in, and in Luke it flows right out of the, tra- the, the transfigur- transfiguration flows right out of this verse here so I think, and I'm not the first person to think this, obviously many people have noticed down through the ages, and this is why it's not, it hasn't been controversial until people with a very critical eye try to come up with reasons for it. It's not that difficult to understand. The transfiguration of Jesus actually fulfills the promise made there. That's why he says, and six days later, I mean, it was right after this happened, just a little, just less than a week after this happened, this incredible event happens. The transfiguration of Jesus is a visual and experiential affirmation that Jesus will return in power. In other words, it's a preview, and those standing there saw it, some of those men. So each passage, every time, whether Matthew says it, or, or Mark says it, or Luke says it, it always, it always has this verb phrase, until they see, and like in Matthew um, 16, 28. There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see. So put some weight on that word see. Because the the transfiguration, they are going to see the Son of Man in His glory. The glory He will have when He returns in great power. So that's where it is. So just as, uh, as some of those standing there did see that. So Matthew 17, 1. Let's move on to Matthew 17. Peter, James, and John six days later Jesus took with him Peter, James and John his brother and led them up on the high mountain by themselves so several times those particular three disciples sort of the inner circle of the twelve they get to see things the other guys don't and this is one of those occasions this is probably the most important one of those occasions and I think Jesus intends to leave this as a very powerful and lasting impression for future years when their ministries would be so hard and the persecution would be so intense that they're going to have this total experiential visual audible memory of the Son of Man coming in the glory of His power because they're going to see what that's like see it it's really interesting when you read the little book of Second Peter you might want to turn towards that because you can see what an impact the experience had on them in relationship to the end of the age. 
So 2 Peter is this little tiny letter. G- Peter scrawled it out, probably in prison, because he knows he's, his death is imminent, and we know from history Peter was crucified. Um, the best evidence we have is that he was crucified upside down, and he knows that's coming. And so he's dashing off 2 Peter to warn the church about false teachers. Still a very important <laughs> book because they're still around. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm just going to start at verse 13. Just kind of listen to how he says this. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, his body, is eminent as also the Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You see that language? Peter sees that as a vision of the power and the coming of of the glory of Christ. That's how he remembers it. So when he thinks about the second coming, he immediately goes back to the transfiguration and the reality of that, which he experienced himself. He saw it and he heard it. So notice in um, verse 16 there how he uses that language, power and coming of the Lord Jesus. And when he thinks about that, he thinks about the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's, that's a really key link there. He links the actual second coming with what he saw on that mountain. So the fact that in all three Gospels, the Gospel writers immediately follow Jesus' words about his coming, that you'll see his coming, they follow that with the story of the transfiguration, that's really significant. In fact, if, you know, if you've read the Gospels a lot, you know that they kind of move stories around sequentially. Like Matthew tends to group things in, um, it's, it's generally sequential, but he takes things and sticks them in places for a theme, he has like thematic portions, like all the healing parts are like stuck in Matthew chapter seven and eight and a lot of those kind of things. So, and Luke is more chronologically oriented and, and Mark is kind of following Matthew's pattern. But, but um, they're very comfortable moving things around. But all of them have the transfiguration immediately following these words of Jesus about nobody will taste death until you, uh, one of, some of you will not taste death until you see the coming. And, and here I think they're absolutely seeing it. There could be another dimension to this too. I I think it's interesting. Some people have brought this up as well. John the Apostle lived longer than all the other apostles. He lived a ripe old age. And you know at the end of his life he was banished from Asia Minor where he ministered so faithfully to so many years to Gentile congregations. And he was banished to the island of Patmos. And what happened to him there? Who remembers? He had a vision. What did he see in the vision? Well, you know because he wrote it down. It's in, that's the book of Revelation, which is all about what? The power and the coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? The situation in the world leading up to it and his coming back. So John was one of the three guys that heard Jesus say, in your lifetime you're going to see the coming of the Son of Man. 
And in the book of Revelation, of course, when he had these visions, he was a very old man. He did see it. He actually saw it prophetically in a vision, but he saw it. So that's another side of that too. So the transfiguration itself, Peter linked to the second coming, and John actually had the full picture in the book of Revelation when that was revealed to him, and he saw it as well. So I think that's the answer to the problem. It's not difficult, really, and that's how people have always understood it. And I think based on the way the texts are written, that's how you're supposed to see it. You're supposed to think of it that way. That is what's going on. So let's talk about the event itself and the minutes we have remaining here. Matthew 17, 1. Uh, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So if you want to understand what Jesus is going to look like in the second coming, there it is. He's like these radiantly glorious angels you see sometimes, bright as the sun. So here he is in the presence of his disciples, gloriously transformed for them. So here is a human being, a person they've always known as a man, and it's like the veil is pulled back, and now they see his true glory. Glory in the Bible, the glory of God in the Old Testament, Moses' time, all the way through, it's always a a brightness, a shining, overwhelming glory, something so glorious you can't even, remember when the temple filled with God's glory after they, well the tabernacle, after they filled the tabernacle? What did they do? All run around in the glory? No, they all pulled away, right? It was, in, it was overwhelming. A human being couldn't even experience it close up. So they, they couldn't even go inside, it says. And Moses describes that event. So it was an amazing thing. It's an overwhelming presence. And this is a similar thing. It's, a, it's an incredible presence. And Moses and Elijah are with him, conversing with them. Why are they there? Well, we're not told why, but almost certainly they represent all the men who foretold his coming, right? Moses at first, of course, and representing the law and the stories in Genesis, and Elijah, all, he, re, he was the greatest of all the prophets that came later, so he sort of represents all the other prophets. Moses died 1,500 years before this event happened, 1,500 years. Elijah never died. Remember, he was whisked up into heaven. That doesn't happen to hardly anybody. Happened to him, though. That was 900 years before this event happened, before Christ. And here they are. And their presence, well, for one thing, it testifies to a life beyond death because they're there. But that's not why they're there. They're there to glorify Christ because he is the center of this thing that's going on. So all the law and the prophets testified to his coming. They anticipate his coming. All the way from Genesis chapter 3, beginning with the books of Moses there, history has awaited the coming of the one who would crush the serpent's head, the serpent in the garden. That starts all the way back the very beginning of the Bible. And century after century, each prophetic era revealed a little bit more about the coming Christ, the Messiah, what he would be like. And here's these three simple men, Peter, James, and John, witnessing Jesus glorified as he will be at the culmination of history. Indeed, uh, all the old things pointed to him. And since he came, everything points back to him, having lived among us. I mean, even the dates of history mark his coming. They can change the little letters. It can be, uh, it can, they can change B.C. and A.D. to C.E. and B.C.E. and C.E. and stuff like that, but, but it's still the same date. 
He changed the world. So what do you suppose they were discussing? It says he was talking with them, Moses and Elijah. Well, Luke tells us, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting to use the word accomplish. Um, Usually you don't accomplish being killed by the authorities. But what did he accomplish in that? The redemption of the world. He died on Passover. On Passover. He was the lamb, the spotless lamb. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bearing witness to Christ. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah about that. I can just imagine Luke asking Peter, what were they talking about? And he told him. So he wrote that down. They were talking about what he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. His death, the same subject that Jesus had just introduced a few days before in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16. So his death is the central point of the conversation. In death, the Bible says he conquered death. Death is the penalty of sin, the sin of bringing moral pollution into God's good universe, which is what we all do. That's man's great addition to creation. We gave sin to the creation of God. And because it's a willful, moral evil that we brought upon God's world, the penalty is death, which means exclusion from the life of God, separateness from God. Death only exists as a consequence of sin. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? But Jesus paid the wages. We have this debt to justice, which is our life. And he paid for our life with his life. That's the gospel right there. So Jesus' own words were in another place, he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, he puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, pulling out of Moses, the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and he redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. There's Moses. They probably discussed that text when they were talking, Moses and Jesus and Elijah. Jesus will become the curse for humanity. So the cross where Jesus died almost two millennia ago changes forever our standing before God if we have him, if we embrace him. Francis Schaeffer wrote a long time ago, if Jesus had not died, everything would have collapsed. Redemption depended on his substitutionary, propitiatory death. Propitiation is satisfying the anger of God, turning away his anger. If Jesus had not died, if he had turned aside, as Satan tried to make him do many times, if he had, in Peter's words, actually had pity on himself and not gone to the cross, everything would have been gone. There would have been no hope for Elijah, translated or not. That would have meant the end of Moses, the disciples, and everyone else because the redemption of everything depended on the single focal point of Jesus' death. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, had proclaimed as he introduced Jesus to the Jews, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world and no other conversation was big enough for the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Jesus' resurrection is certainly important. So too are his ascension and his teachings. But the welfare of every believer and the entire creation depends upon his death. That's why they were talking about it. Francis Schaeffer is totally right about that. The death of Jesus for sin. So what a conversation that must have been. Well, in all the world, listening to Jesus and Elijah and Moses having a conversation, who and all the people in the world would interrupt that? Who would it be if, if somebody was going to interrupt that conversation? Peter, big mouth, right? I mean, um, loquacious. Loquacious Peter. <laughs> He's the one. Verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It sounds like he just kind of wants to keep things going, right? So he, he suggests setting up little shelters for them, you know, these three eminent men. But based on what he's told in verse five, I think Peter's missing the point. So while he was still speaking, I love that, he's going on. God has to interrupt Peter. <laughs> A bright cloud overshadowed them. So while he's talking, oh, what's going on here? A voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son. That's what Peter's quoting in 2 Peter when he's remembering all the way back early in his life when this happened. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He doesn't say shut up and listen, but that's sort of implied. <laughs> Jesus is not just one of these great men. He is the summation of their work. He's the summation of all of their hopes. He's the summation, the answer of all the prophecies given to them over the long, long centuries. And he is the beloved son. He's the creator of Moses and Elijah, not a buddy of theirs. He's their redeemer. He's not just a friend or another prophet come along after them. It doesn't matter if Moses stays there or Elijah stays there. Only Jesus matters because he's divine. His honors are the honors he shares with the Father. In him, the New Testament says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. It doesn't say that about Moses. In fact, about Moses, it says, you die here on the mountain, you can't go into the land. But Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Listen to him. Listen to him. Could there be an, a, a more important word from God for us than these three words? Listen to him. I can't think of any. Well, the three disciples are overwhelmed by the cloud of glory, just like people were in the Old Testament, as men always are in the scriptures. And verse 6 says, When they heard this, they fell down, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. They were overwhelmed by the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God speaking to them out of the glory. They're not going to look anymore. They're shielding their eyes. Their faces are to the ground. They're cast down. Now what follows here, verse 7, gives them and gives us a very personal and powerful affirmation of what the voice was saying. And Jesus, verse 7, came to them and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus himself alone. It's one of the most beautiful 
passages in all of Scripture. That's how Matthew concludes this whole episode with the word manon, alone. Jesus himself alone. It's, it's all too easy for people who claim to have some kind of affiliation with Jesus or some kind of religious direction towards Jesus to, to use the name Christian. You know, if you ask somebody, if you ask the average American what their religion is, the vast majority of people would say Christian. That's what all the pollsters say. But it's so easy for those people to completely ignore him about everything, everything pertaining to their life. If you show them what Jesus actually says in the book, they'll, they'll say something, a nice version of, you expect me to follow that? You are here sitting in church this morning and you can do that and you can leave this place and not listen to him. Not let him speak to you. Not let him speak into your life. You can do that. It's really easy to do that. We can refuse to listen to him about forgiveness. We can refuse to listen to him about mercy, about holiness of life, about loving our enemies, about putting God first in our lives, about serving his kingdom. We can shine that on, you know? And Jesus says quite a bit, actually, in the Bible. And it's all written here, all we need to know. This is, this, there's very little in life. I'm just trying to think of examples and I can't think of very many, especially in terms of relationships and understanding the nature of the world and who I am and faith and all of that stuff. I can't think of anything that's not directly impacted by his words. But it's very tempting to not, not listen and to hear other voices that tell us different things and to follow them. Voices that tell us what we want to hear, right? Not what we need to hear. Listen to him, God says. Listen to him. He tells you what true spirituality is. He tells you what righteousness is. He tells you what love is. He tells you what you should treasure. He tells you what you should shun. He tells you how to think, what to believe, how to treat other people. God says, listen to him. There's not many things in life, his words and ideas, don't directly touch every single day of your life. So important. Jesus' words are the standard by which we measure ourselves. They're the proven standard. They're they're actually the expression of God's will for us always because they're his words. They have the seal of absolute authority and absolute validity so listen to him listen to him they saw no one except Jesus himself alone so when it comes to living our lives or shaping our hearts or the direction of our lives making moral decisions we should see no one except Jesus alone in our hearts in our understanding Peter James and John lifted up their eyes and that's what they saw so when we lift up our eyes if you will metaphorically speaking and behold him by faith that's what we should see Jesus himself alone that's all that matters doesn't matter what I say matters what he says when he speaks and he speaks in every page of this book we're holding we should listen to him because he's God in human flesh because all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in him because his compassion is perfect and he himself is completely trustworthy 
for all things. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our King, our Lord. You are, you alone are worthy of our devotion, our love. You made us and you loved us even in our sin and redeemed us by your death. So we ask you to give us eyes that are only for you, ears only for your words. We ask this of the Father in your name. Amen.